this series, this sermon series that we are beginning today is all about change. Change away from the old normal into what will hopefully be our new normal, which hopefully will be a new life, a better life, a richer life in Jesus. There is no better place to start this series on change than to start with with the event that symbolizes and even provides the impetus for change, the resurrection of Jesus. There are a group of Christians that, that are known as CEO Christians. They're referred to as CEO Christians. The CEO stands for Christmas, Easter only Christians. In church growth, these individuals are spoken of as folk that only attend church uh, on Christmas and Easter. But I would say there are a lot of CEO Christians that attend church every single week. Because one of the characteristics of a CEO Christian is that they love what Christmas and Easter mean for them. Jesus came to this earth to live for them and die for them. Jesus was resurrected from the dead, therefore they will also be Therefore, they may also be resurrected from the dead one day. But CEO Christians miss out on what Christmas and Easter should draw them from. They, they like what Christmas and Easter are about, but, but they don't necessarily delve deep into how Christmas and Easter should change their lives. Of course, Christmas is a call for all humanity to return to Jesus and worship him as, as King of kings and Lord of lords. The, the story of Christmas should, should draw us from absolute worship, draw us into absolute worship and life commitment. The resurrection or Easter as we refer to it in our culture is a call for absolute life change from every Christian believer. It's not just about attending once or twice a year, but, but, but Easter really draws our hearts and our minds to a resurrection of new life, absolute life change. And it is this latter event, the resurrection, and what it means in us and, and what it gives us the power to do that I want to focus on today and begin this series with. So I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 6. As I already mentioned in the welcome, hopefully you have those Bibles with you. Romans chapter 6. And Romans chapter 6 begins with a question. But before we get to that question, let me summarize chapter 5 for you in, Ro in Romans. In Romans chapter 5, uh, Paul states that everyone is a sinner due to our lineage in Adam. Adam was the first human, and our lineage through that, we, because of that, we are all sinners. But all humanity is given a gift through Jesus. And that gift is justification, which means to be made right. The word justification simply means to be made right. It is a gift. And Paul wants to assure some of us who seem to struggle with sin more than others that, that when sin is great, grace is even greater. We've talked about this several times in our last series, The Words from the Cross. But throughout history, unfortunately, people have had the following reaction to Paul's statement. Because Paul's statement says, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. In other words, no matter how bad of sinner you are, God's grace is still greater than that. 
And so, so there's been a reaction by some who don't really want to change their lives. They like the idea of grace, but they don't really want to change their lives uh, to, to respond in an inappropriate way to such a teaching. Leon Morris sums it up this way. An obvious reaction to the thought that we see God's grace in our salvation and that no merit of our own is involved is to reason that the more we sin, the more scope there is for God's grace. So Paul begins chapter 6 addressing what Morris summarized. He asked this question after he said where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, then Paul asked this question. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Let's put this in a modern day way of thinking and not as a question but as a statement that we might hear from, from CEO Christians or that we might hear from a modern society. I am a Christian and Jesus forgave me so it doesn't matter what I do. I can live my life how I want to live my life. You mind your business, including you, God. You mind your business, and I'll live my life as I please. This is the thinking of a CEO Christian. I believe in Jesus. I love Christmas. I love Easter. But Jesus doesn't really impact any of the other areas of my life. Let's go back to Paul and ask him, Paul, is this the way a Christian should live? He asks the question, should we then keep on sinning? Verse 2 of Romans chapter 6, by no means, absolutely not. It's one of the strongest statements in the Bible. It's the, the Greek phrase, meganoito, absolutely not. But why, Paul? Why shouldn't we just continue in this way? If, if, if no matter how bad our sin is, grace is just bigger, why shouldn't we keep doing this? Paul writes, don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So Paul here is speaking to individuals that have been baptized. In your homes right now, right where you're at, just so I know who you are and I know that you are with me, if you have been baptized, raise your hand. Family members, look around. Are all the baptized people raising their hands? Good. So I've been baptized. That means... This message is for me as well. If you have not been baptized, if you have not taken that step of faith, will you please reach out to me? You can write me at chad.stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T, at spencervillesda.org, and I'd love to talk with you about baptism. And even if you haven't been baptized, I would encourage you to keep listening because so that you don't become a CEO Christian. Instead, you become a, a Christian that God intended you to be. When we go down into the water, Paul is saying, that is symbolic of Jesus dying on the cross and being buried for us. Jesus took the sins of all humanity, all the world, on himself at the cross. And, and, and he died on that cross because of our sins and he was buried in the grave. He was in a way washing the world clean. When we are baptized, we are symbolically washing off our sin. One time, I, a lady I was baptizing said to me, just before I dipped her, she, she whispered in my ear, you can keep me down there a little longer, Pastor, just to make sure I am totally clean. It symbolically washes us. But listen to verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, that's a key phrase, in order that, 
Jesus didn't just die on the cross with the sins. There was, there was something that came after. After his death, the, the most glorious and supernatural event in history happened. He rose from the grave. And not just from the, the grave of the first death, but the, the grave of the second death. So we were buried in baptism just as Jesus was buried in the grave. And just as Jesus didn't stay in the grave, we don't stay under the water. Jesus went into the grave, but he was resurrected on the third day, and he lives. We don't stay under the water. We go under in order to be resurrected, in order to come up. Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life, Paul writes. He says we were buried with Christ in order that, in other words, there's a purpose for why we are buried, so that we may be raised up, and what does it say? To new life. Jesus didn't get out of the grave with his old grave clothes on. Jesus didn't get out of the grave still bleeding and gasping for air. Jesus didn't get out of the grave with the crown of thorns still on his head. Jesus didn't get out of the grave with the burden of your sins and my sins still upon him. Jesus rose up to a new life in the glory of the Father. And when we participate in Jesus' resurrection, when we come up out of the baptismal waters to have a new life, it is for the glory of the Father. It is not simply to say, I believe in Jesus, or, or I know who Jesus is, or I'm glad that he died for me. We're raised up in order that we may have new life. That means, new life means that, that what was normal before will no longer be normal in the future. What I thought was acceptable before will no longer be acceptable in the future. What I, the things I did in the past that I saw no issue with, I, I now may see issue with those things in the future. Baptism is more than symbolically saying I believe in Jesus. It is joining Jesus in his resurrection, which is in order that there will be new life. Not somewhere in the future. A lot of times when we talk about the resurrection, we think about the fact that, that because Jesus died in the grave and rose again, that one day in the future he's going to come back and he's going to resurrect all those that have died in Christ. And we, this is true and we praise God for this. This is what uh, Paul talked to the church in Thessalonica about and in other places of Scripture. But, but the new life... It, in, in Romans chapter 6 is not speaking of a future resurrection of, of the body. It's speaking of a new life in the here and the now. Paul then begins to retread this argument again and again in chapter 6. He keeps reiterating this idea in new ways. That there's death, that there's a burial, that there's a resurrection and there's a new life. Dr. Derek Morris quoting many other preaching instructors in history who were all summarizing kind of the communication philosophy of Aristotle used to say to us all the time when he was teaching us about preaching, tell them what you are going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. That is what Paul is doing here. He's telling them what he's, he's telling us what he's going to tell us. He's telling us, and then he's telling us what he told us. And he does it over and over and over again. You died to sin, 
but death was not the end. There is a resurrection to new life. You died to sin, but death is not the end. There is a resurrection, so you are no longer a slave to sin. You died to sin, but this is not the end. There is a resurrection so that you are free from the bondage of sin. The same theme repeated again and again, slightly different words, but repeated again and again. Do you think Paul wants us to understand that the resurrection of Jesus and our baptism into Christ is more than just an event, more than just a statement of our belief? It was a powerful moment that symbolized absolute change, victory over sin, a new life. Not somewhere in the distant future, but now. Paul, in verses 8 through 10, focuses on the power of Jesus' death over sin. That Jesus' death has a power to destroy all sin. Hear that, folk. Hear that. No matter how sinful you are, Jesus' death destroys all sin. But then in verse 11, because verse 8 says that, that we are united with Christ because of our connection to Christ, and then it talks about the power, and then he talks about the power of Jesus to destroy all sin. But then verse 11 begins with the conclusion of of this section of Paul's thoughts with the phrase, in the same way. I want to put that also into a more modern language and help you understand what what Paul is conveying there and what the the Greek conveys. Paul is saying because of all this and because of Jesus' power over sin and because we say that we are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection— In the same way, verse 11, what that is actually saying is that if we have chosen to follow Jesus in his death and resurrection, then there are consequences to this decision. Now, consequences is not really a positive term. And and for some, what I'm about to say may not feel very positive. It depends on if you really desire to be united with Christ or not. But choosing to be buried with Christ And in order that you may experience the glory of his resurrection has the consequence, the result of, the purpose of our lives being different afterwards. If we say we are united with Christ, then there is a consequence. In the same way, Paul says, what what the Greek is conveying there is If you agree to all this, baptism, uh, resurrection from the baptismal tank, being united with Christ, then you are agreeing to respond in a certain way. The consequence is that our lives will be different. Verse 12 talks about what those consequences are. That we no longer let sin reign in us. That we don't let our bodies become instruments of sin and tools of sin and, and, motive, uh, and, and modes of sin. Instead, we offer ourselves to live righteous lives, which means right living for Jesus. A person who has truly embraced the power of the resurrection, according to, to this text, no longer continues in sin. No longer lives in sin, no longer is a slave to sin, no longer allows sin to reign in their bodies, no longer is used as an 
instrument of sin because they are alive. They have been resurrection, resurrected into a new life. Now if I ended the sermon right there, we would all be in trouble. And maybe a lot of us would go away discouraged because we go, man, I still have sin in my life. I still struggle with sin. I still have to fight against sin. Because when we read that, no longer continue in sin, no longer live in sin, no longer uh, let sin reign in us, no longer are used as instruments of sin, we focus on that word sin, sin, sin over and over again. And, and, and we think of it as, well, I know I still have sin in my life. And I know I'm, I'm still a sinner. And, and so obviously maybe then I'm not united with Christ. And we be, can become quite discouraged. Because all of that sounds like perfectionism. And perfectionism, or another name for it in Adventist, Adventism, last generation theology, is a brutal, abusive, tyrannical, dictatorial master. But let me give you two quick reasons to show that I am not speaking here of perfectionism. Not in the sense that we as humans are perfect First, Paul does not say that we never commit sin. What does he say? He says that we don't continue in sin, and I'll unpack that in a moment. He says that, that we don't live in sin. Let me give you this illustration. Before I became a follower of Jesus, I, I was going to say I loved to curse, but I don't think loved is the right word. I just cursed. Cursing was, was a part of my regular vocabulary. And yes, cursing is a sin. Using foul language is a sin. The Bible says, let no coarse words come from your mouth. So, so, so I just would curse without giving it a thought. I could curse here and someone, and even if I cursed in front of my mom, she'd say, hey, watch your mouth. It didn't register in my brain that I actually need to stop cursing. I just would continue to be foul-mouthed. When I accepted Jesus, he began to, to clean up my mouth and to reform my brain so that no longer were those the first words that were on my lips, except for those rare moments when they were. The night before one of my friend's weddings, we were watching um, some old home movies, the groomsmen that were there, we were watching some old home movies that, that he had recorded in high school. And one, in one of the videos that he had made, uh, we were just watching it and laughing at some of the things that were being said and how we were acting. And, 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 and in a moment on the video, I come into the room and there's this, this string of profanities and, and, and this inappropriate statement that I make that comes out of my mouth. And Scotty, the groom, looked at me and said, man, it is so weird to even think of you speaking like that. It wasn't because... I never had a bad word come into my mind or that I never said something inappropriate. 
after I became a Christian, but no longer was that me. I was no longer the same person. For me to walk into a room and say that at that point in time, there was no pause, there was no thought, there was no, no disconcordance with who I was, but, but now I am a new person in Jesus. And, and so even to hear me saying it on a video 10 years prior, seven years prior was, was awkward for people, was, was, was weird, was, was uncomfortable for me. Not that I had never sinned since then, but, but I was no longer living in that way. That people saw that I lived differently. It is not about never sinning again. It is about that it's not the continuous action of our lives. That it's not the, the, the that we're no longer living it. When, when we sin now, we pause and we say, Jesus, please forgive me. For that, when we sin now, we 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 kind of analyze what those things are that caught, lead us into that sin, and we we say, "Lord, help me to step away from that." I love what John Stott writes in his great commentary, "The Message of Romans." He wrote this: "The major secret of holy living is in the mind. It is in knowing that our former self." was crucified with Christ in knowing that baptism into Christ is baptism into his death and resurrection. And in considering that through Christ we are dead to sin and alive to God, we are to recall, to ponder, to grasp, to register these truths until they are so integral to our mindset that a return to the old life is unthinkable." Stott's big idea is that, is that a lot of times why we go back into sin is because for a moment, we have momentary lapses where we forget who we are, that we are resurrected children of the living God. And we need to remind ourselves who we are. We are united with Christ. And as we think on those things, as we draw our attention to those things, that it draws us away from that living, that continuous living in sin. Stott's position is not that we are perfect, but as we think on Jesus and what he has done for us, that we become changed. Folks, this is biblical. By beholding, you become changed. By beholding, you become changed. Stott is implying that if we know what it is to believe that Jesus' death to, that, it, that we know that Jesus' death took care of my sins, and we know that, that by being baptized in Jesus, I am receiving the victory of Jesus' death, and that we know by being resurrected out of the baptismal tank like Jesus was resurrected into new life, we too are being resurrected into new life, and that if we think on these things often, I am now in Jesus. I am no longer what I once was because Jesus has redeemed me. That, that our minds become renewed. David wrote about this. The renew in me a, a right spirit. Give me a clean heart and renew in me a right spirit, O oh God. This is what he's talking about. Jesus, I'm a sinner. Renew in me that right spirit. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Man, I, I realize that I've been going down this path again of sinfulness. I don't want to continue in that sin. Who am I? 
Oh, I'm a saved child of the King. Jesus, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Not continuing in sin, not, not living in sin, being free from sin, having sin no longer reign in us, no longer being instruments of sin, does not mean that we don't on occasion still sin, but it means that it is not who we are, and when we do it, it is outside of who we are, and we say, Jesus, I'm sorry, bring me back to the glory and the reminder of who I am in the resurrection of my King. Sometimes I reminisce about the days, my days as a child. I think about those times as a child, and I think about, man, there was simpler times then, but, but I don't go back to being a child. I don't put back on a diaper. I don't put a pacifier back in my mouth. Sometimes I have moments where I think about when I was single, but, but I don't go back to being single. And sometimes I think sinfully, but I don't go back to living in that sin. Because when I'm there, I'm reminded that, that just as I'm not a child anymore, now I'm an adult with responsibilities. And just as I'm not single anymore, now I'm, I'm married and in love with Christina. And just as I'm, I'm, I'm no longer living in sin anymore. I, yes, I still have sin, but I'm no longer living in sin because I'm a child, a redeemed child of the King. Jesus, save me. The second reason that it is clear that Paul is not teaching here perfectionism is that Paul, he goes through all of this, you die, you're buried, you're resurrected, freedom from sin. You die, you're buried, you're resurrected, no longer living in sin. You die, you're buried, you're resurrected, you no longer continue in sin, this ongoing aspect of sinning. But the second reason this is no longer perfection, that after Paul does all of this, in verse 11, he gives, or at the end of the thought process, he gives three commands. The last three statements in 11 and 12 are all commands. Verse 11, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. It's a command that, that we are to think on this and consider ourselves and to focus on being dead to sin. I was once a sinner. This is no longer who I am. I am a resurrected child of the king. In verse 12, he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. This is a command. Don't let sin just reside in you and stay in you and live in you and have power over you. In verse 13, he says, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. In other words, if I know that I'm, that I'm being used by Satan as a tool of his, then, then, then I say, I'm no longer gonna do this. I'm gonna fight against this. I'm gonna be a tool of righteousness, not a tool of Satan. If there is, an, if there is not an ongoing battle with sin in our lives, then why would Paul, at the end of all this, make these commands of what we are to do ongoing, to continue to fight against Continue to fight against sin reigning in you. Continue to fight against being uh, used as an instrument of the devil. These commands are there because even though we no longer live in sin and we are free from sin, the truth is sin is still there. And it is still a battle of our wills. And we still struggle. And we still have moments where we sin. We have moments 
we have to go back and remind ourselves that we are free in Christ. We have moments where we have to go back and remind ourselves we no longer are slaves to sin. We have, to go, we have moments where we have to go back and remind ourselves we no longer live in sin. Y'all, embracing the power of the resurrection has consequences. The consequence is that your life after your baptism over time begins to look much different than the life before your baptism. There was moments in my life where I took pride in people saying, you know what, you're not that much different than you were before. But brothers and sisters, we should be very different than we were before. Now one other discouraging thing is as we think about all this and the battle, we talked about the battle to not let sin reign, the battle to not be used as an instrument of sin, the battle to no longer see ourselves as, as, sin, as living in sin. I want to say one more thing. This battle is not yours ultimately. The verse, the final verse of this section, Romans chapter 6 and verse 14, reads like this. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. The problem with folk that don't understand grace is this, that they think that, that, if, we, that if we preach too much grace that somehow and some will use it as a license to do whatever. But those people have not really truly then accepted grace. Because what grace truly does is it gives you the power to be different, to live different. Grace is more than a word. It's, it's a power of the Almighty God to make us new. Paul tells us it is possible to live this resurrected new life because of grace. When we try to live this way as a means of saving ourselves, we are under the law and we fail miserably because no matter how hard we try to keep the law, we can't do it. But, but when we live this way in response to grace, something amazing happens. Change occurs. We live new lives. The, 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 the crazy thing is that, is that when we're living under the law, we are trying to defeat an enemy that Jesus already defeated at the cross. But when we live under grace, we're embracing the victory and saying, I'm going forward to the victory party. And when we see ourselves as children of grace, when we see ourselves as, as loved, it changes us. The power of grace, the power of love changes us. Hai was a cyclo driver in Vietnam in the 1970s. A cyclo driver was one of these guys that would ride the bike with a basket in front and, and like a taxi. He's very poor, he's impoverished. And, and one of his riders is a lady named Lan, a beautiful prostitute. Now both Hai and Lan have completely unfulfilled desires because Han can't afford Lan and, as, as a prostitute and, and he doesn't know what to do and he knows that he can never be with her because even though he loves her, she is a prostitute. 
And Lan, as a, as a prostitute, is trying to sleep her way out of the life she hates. She thinks if she just does this long enough, she'll make enough money to get out of that life. Hai often drives her home after her nights with various men in fancy hotels, and, and Lan asks Hai if he has ever stayed in one of those fancy hotels. He says no. She tells him they are not for people like us because even though she's in those hotels often, she's never allowed to sleep in the hotel. Han Hai asks Lan, have you ever received flowers? Do they ever give you flowers? And she says no. She says that she, for just one night, she wishes that she could be in that world, that that is her dream, where she could stay all night in in the hotel, and that one day she's going to get out of this life so that she can be one of those people that gets to sleep in the hotel. But the more she tries to make money in prostitution, the, more, the worse her life gets, the more abuse she encounters. Hi, as I said, is a cyclo driver, and he enters a local race of other cyclo drivers, and to his surprise, he wins the cycle race and the grand prize. Now he has an amount of money that he has never had before. This is the type of money that, that could go a long way to changing his impoverished life and, and improving his, his way of living. But guess what he does with that money? He spends all the money on one thing. Hai goes to Lan and he tells her, I have this money. I want to see you tonight in this hotel room. And he pays Lan's prostitution fee. And he says, I'll see you tonight. The story progresses to this fancy hotel room and there is Hai and there is Lan. And Lon is expecting that High wants her in the same way that every other man who has brought her to one of these hotels wants her. But to her surprise, and, and the way the story is set up, to the reader's surprise, he doesn't. He tells her, I don't want to have sex with you. I just want you to sleep. He has only purchased her a place as an actual guest in the normal world she dreams of joining. At first she is hesitant, but slowly and surely she comfortably falls asleep. And by morning he's gone, but there is room service next to the bed and, and there are flowers sitting on the cart that he got her. He is gone having demanded nothing from her. All he wanted to do was to show her her value. This, this event causes something to snap in Lon. 
because of the way that, that High has viewed her, she can no longer go back to her old job of prostitution. Having experienced for the first time someone who used his power to serve her rather than use her, she gets a new sense of her own dignity. She's not the same person. She's changed by the transforming grace of selfless love. She now sees who she is, no longer the prostitute who deserves abuse, but someone who deserves to be valued. And it changes her. It moves her out of her old life into a new life. Brothers and sisters, when we look upon Jesus and we see that he loves us so much that he was willing to come down to this earth to live among us, to suffer with us, to be tempted as we are, that he was willing to die a brutal, horrific, shameful death for us. When we realize that he was raised to life new and glorious, not with our sins piled upon him, and that he now sits at the right hand of God ever living to make intercession for us, that we realize that he is knocking on the doors of our hearts no matter how stained our hearts may be, no matter how disgusting our sin may be. He knocks on the doors of our hearts because he sees someone of value, not a prostitute to be bought, but someone to be loved and won. There is something that should snap in us, that awakens us in us and calls us to be different, to be resurrected with Jesus to a new life. This sermon series is about change, and I hope you will choose in your mind Jesus' grace and allow him to change you and to give you a life beyond any other. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you don't see us as, as, a, as a prostitute. You don't see us as, as sinful. You don't see us as, as cheaters, as liars, as, as manipulators. You don't see us as greedy. You see us as who we could be. As it says in another part of Romans, you see that which is not as though it were. And we thank you, Jesus, that you see us in that way. And Lord, as we are buried in you, may we be resurrected to new life. And may we embrace the consequence of living a life fully and completely devoted to you. Lord, change every aspect of our life for the glory of the Father, we pray. Amen.